You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verse 3. And we'll begin by asking God's help as we uh, look at His Word. Let's bow our heads. Father, we come to You and thank You for Your Word. It is precious to us. And we know that we are ignorant without it. And without it, we have no clear revelation of who You are or Your saving plan for us in Christ. We pray that today as we look at Your Word that You would give us the help that we need to understand it, to listen to it, to apply it and to teach it, that you might be honored here through us and among us as we look together at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, we began last week by looking at this issue of personal conflict, and many of you weren't here last Sunday, so I'll just kind of give you a brief review of where we're at in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4.1 begins with some terms of endearment where the Apostle Paul expresses his love and his affection for those in Philippi. Then in chapter 2, he sort of gets to the heart of an issue that needed to be addressed in the Philippian church. Two ladies who could not get along with each other. One was named Yodia, and one was named Syntyche. And something had happened in the church at Philippi where these two, and we presume they were leading ladies because they're named by name, and obviously their conflict was of such a nature that the entire church had heard about it and was aware of it because Paul named them by name in a letter that was written to the entire church. So he calls out these two women and applies the subject of, uh, or the topic of living together and being united and being uh, harmonious toward one another. He applies it to their specific conflict. And with a very real sense of urgency, he says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And what we noticed last week was the potential for disaster that such a disharmony amongst people within the congregation poses to the life and health of the whole body. When two people who, they don't even have to be leading people, they can just be two brothers and sisters or brothers and sisters in Christ, when they're at conflict and at odds with each other and in disharmony together, everything just begins to be poisoned by that. And it's good to get it dealt with as quickly as possible and as urgently as possible. That's why the Apostle Paul appeals that it would be resolved. You will notice, we noticed that the Apostle didn't take sides. He didn't say, I want Uriodia to join Syntyche's mindset. He didn't ask Syntyche to think more like Yodia. He just appealed to both women evenly without giving any of the details. He asked them both to live harmoniously in the Lord. And the word live harmoniously meant simply to have the same mindset, to adopt the same way of thinking. It's the same word that was used back in chapter 2, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul says, have this attitude or this mindset, this way of thinking in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
What mindset was that? It was that humbling, sacrificial, servant mindset which condescended, as the Lord Jesus did, from the glories of heaven down here to earth, taking upon Himself a form of a servant and coming here and coming in the likeness of men and dying on a cross and becoming obedient even to the point of death. That's the type of condescending, humble mindset that the Apostle Paul is appealing to. And he is simply saying to Yodia and to Syntyche, I want you both to adopt that mindset. Not that you both, one, agree with the other, but that you both have the way of thinking that Christ had. And in the presence of such humble way of thinking, what would happen to the conflict? It would dissolve. It would be gone. If both people in a conflict simply humbled themselves, repented of their self-serving, selfish ambitions and their vain conceit, and before the Lord and the power of the Spirit of God endeavored to serve and to love the other individual and to strengthen them and to be at harmony with them, if both of them appeal to that, if both of them are endeavoring to do that, then the conflict disappears. You can still have conflict remaining if one person does that, but the other person doesn't receive it. Right? Because Scripture says you are to be as much as rest with you at peace with whom? All men, the Bible says. Now, there are times, listen, when you will endeavor to be at peace with somebody and they don't want any part of the peace. All they want is the conflict. They're still going to hate you. They're still not going to forgive you. They're not going to have anything to do with you. They don't want it resolved. They don't want it dealt with. They like to have the bitterness. They like the criticism. They like the deterioration of the relationship. So as much as rests with you, you are to be at peace with all men. There are people, and you all have them in your lives, I'm imagining, There are people with whom you have had a conflict at some point in time and you have done everything in your power to be at peace with that individual. You've written them letters. You've appealed to them. You've gone over and talked to them. You've done everything to repent, to confess, to acknowledge your wrongdoing and get them to acknowledge their wrongdoing, to humble yourself, to serve them, to appeal to them, and they still want nothing else to do with you. Sometimes that happens. When that happens, you just need to be at peace as much as rests with you with all men. And they have to learn to deal with their conflict before the Lord. If both Yodia and Syntyche would humble themselves and as much as rest with them, be at peace with the other, the conflict would dissolve. Because both of them would endeavor to serve and love the other individual to the best of their ability and the power of the Spirit, just the way Jesus loved and served us. So that brings us to verse 3, because we looked last week at a little bit of the prescription that Paul gave to handle this conflict. And I give you the review because we're not beginning a new subject. We're actually sort of picking up with where we had to stop last week due to time. We're going to be looking at verse 3 where Paul says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There's a few more details there about resolving this conflict that we need to look at and some instructive stuff for us. And we're going to basically sort of hang our thoughts on two ideas that we see in the text. Here's the first. We're going to look at the, the... Help that Paul requested from this seemingly unknown person whom he calls true companion, or is translated true companion. And then second, we're going to look at the motivation for resolving this conflict, which is given to us namely at the end of the verse, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we're going to look at the help that Paul requested and then the motivation that he gave for them. So let's look first of all at the, the help that Paul requested. He says, indeed, I ask you, true companion, to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I ask you, true companion, to help these women. Now, can, I want you to hear the sense of urgency in Paul's words. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. 
And you also, true companion, help these women. Now, there's a certain sense in which everything I've said about humbling yourself and living with the mindset that Christ had had sounds easy on the surface, doesn't it? I say to you, look, if you have a conflict with somebody, you simply humble yourself, you serve that individual, and you resolve the conflict. And it's over, and it disappears. It, it, it just dissolves. That sounds so easy, doesn't it? That sound easy? Imagine a pastoral counseling situation where two people come to you and say, look, we're at odds. And the pastor simply says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There you go. Problem solved. Next. That was the fastest 15 minutes I've ever spent in my life. Next. Somebody may rightly say, the principle is true, the principle is biblical, but that's not always the easiest thing to do, is it? Even for those of us who are believers, adopting the mindset of Christ does not always come second nature to us. We can cling to our pride. We can cling to our justifications. We can cling to our ambitions. We cannot want to set that aside. We can rationalize and justify it all day long. But even for Christians, adopting the mindset of Christ is not always the easiest thing to do. That's why Paul asks this person called True Companion to help these women. See, friends, I think Paul knew that this conflict had gotten to the point where it wasn't just a matter of saying, look, you guys, be at peace. Paul knew that this conflict had gotten to the point where he asked somebody in Philippi, I want you to help these two women deal with this issue. And I think what you have in Philippians 4 is just a very practical, vivid application of the principle given in Galatians 6. You who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. Just talked about, talked on, try that again. Just taught on this last Sunday in adult Sunday school class. The idea is that sometimes there are, you have to call on mature and spiritual people within the congregation who know their Bibles and have applied wisdom and have wisdom to come alongside people and sort of strengthen them. And Yodi and Syntyche were two ladies who had been fallen in and been caught, as it were, in a trespass, in a situation where they needed the help of somebody who was probably more mature than them, possibly more knowledgeable than them, maybe older in the faith than them, but somebody who was solid in the faith who could come alongside these women and help them adopt the mindset of Christ and show them their weaknesses and show them what needed to happen. And that's the blessing of being in the body of Christ, is it not? To know that on any given Sunday morning, you can look around you and hopefully know that there are a multitude of people who are willing to walk with you through any valley. Now, the goal is always to be that person who walks through the other with the other person, not the person who needs to be walked through with. Some of us find ourselves in that situation, but the goal is always to be able to be that person who is mature in the faith and say, look, I've been there, I can come alongside you, I can help you get this resolved. Blessed are the peacemakers. The people who are peacemakers. And I think this person, this true companion, was a peacemaker. And Paul's saying, I want you to help these women. This is not going to be easy for them to get this resolved, so I want you to step in and help them. Now, who is this person called true companion? Do you notice that in your translation? He seems to be unnamed, isn't he? There's no name given. He names Yodi and Syntyche, and he names uh, Clement, but it appears that there's no name for this individual who's just called a true companion. Now, I want to dive into who this person is because it's curious in, in my brain, and that means it's probably curious to one or two of you. And I'll tell you right at the, up, at the start of this, the answer to this question is not going to change your life whatsoever. You're not going to walk away from here saying, wow, that was one of the best sections of pre- preaching I've ever heard in my life. You're not going to do that. It's not going to change your life. But in the interest of being thorough, I do want to ask us, or ask I do want to ask us, who is this true companion? The word translated companion is syzygous. Syzygous. 
And it means a yoke fellow. Somebody who bears a burden alongside of somebody else. Somebody who's bound together and walks next to somebody. And, and this is here is translated as companion or probably something, a synonym of companion in your translation, depending on what you've got. But there seems to be no name attached to it. There's, there's, he doesn't name this person and then call him a true companion. He just simply addresses it. Now, the question is, who is this person? Because you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and you find that the epistle is written to the entire church in Philippi and to the elders and to the deacons. So it's, a very, it's addressed very generally to a group of people. But then here you get in chapter 4 and Paul seems to single out one person whom he doesn't even name and says, I want you to help these women. And we scratch our head and say, who is this one person that he has in mind that was supposed to help Yodi and Syntyche? Well, I narrow it down to five possibilities. And some of these I don't float, think float at all, but let me give them to you. Some of them are kind of loopy. The first possibility is that this person, Sisygus, is somebody who was unknown to us, but known to the church in Philippi, known to Paul and unnamed, and everybody assumed and just knew who it was. Sort of a body of common knowledge. And the Apostle Paul could just simply refer to his true companion in Philippi, and everybody in the church would know, oh, he's talking about so-and-so. He knows who that is. That's... That's, Paul always calls him my true companion, so we know who that is. Now, um, look, he names Jodia, he names Syntyche, he names Clement, he names Epaphroditus, he names Timothy, he names other people in the epistle. There's no need to think that he would withhold a name here. So I don't think it's just somebody that's unnamed and unknown. I think he has a specific person in mind. Paul doesn't do that anywhere else, by the way. There's a second possibility, and this one I think sinks fast. And that is that this person was Paul's wife that he calls true companion. People are always trying to give Paul a wife. This person was married to Paul. That person was married to Paul. And that's, a, that's a, something that somebody has suggested, that he's just referring to his true companion and he has in mind there his wife. No, it wasn't. Paul was not married. There's nothing else in Scripture. Look, if Paul had a wife in Philippi that he hadn't seen for three years, I think he would have said something more than, hey, help these two women get something resolved. And we would be reading more about that here. But having been in prison for two years, I think that there might have been something else on Paul's heart that he would not want to write to his true companion, if indeed it was his wife. His wife. Sorry, I ran out of oxygen there. <clears throat> Some people have also suggested that Lydia was Paul's wife and that after he led her to the Lord on the banks of the Ganges River there, that they got married and shacked up for a little bit before he left and went off. Look, I do not think for a moment that the Apostle Paul had a wife in some city that he visited three or four times before he died and that he was off doing missionary work and attending to the churches and neglecting his home and neglecting his wife. That does not fit with anything we read about Paul, so I do not think it was his wife. The third option is that this person being addressed here is Timothy. Because we know from chapter 2 that Paul was sending Timothy back to uh, Philippi, probably with Epaphroditus, and that this true companion is Timothy. Now, that one I think is somewhat possible and workable, but I'm not sold on it, uh, simply because I think that Paul would have mentioned that this was Timothy if he had Timothy in mind. A fourth possibility is that this person called true companion here is Epaphroditus. Because if you go back to chapter 2, verse 25, Paul calls him my fellow worker. A different word, but the same idea. And that here in chapter 4, the argument goes, Paul is telling Epaphroditus what he wants him to do when he gets back to Philippi. And he's simply incorporating his directions to Epaphroditus into the epistle so that when Epaphroditus reads it to the congregation or when it is read in in the congregation, Paul's instructions to Epaphroditus in dealing with this issue in the church would be heard and known by the entire church. And then people would say, okay, he's the man, our true companion. He's going to deal with this issue, Epaphroditus. That, I think, is somewhat workable, but a little sketchy, and I'm not sold on it. I'm sold on option number five, and I'm sure you remember all four of the first options, and you'll remember them all the way through the potluck. The fifth option is the one I'm sold on. This is the one I think is workable and is actually true. I think the word Sisygus is a proper name. 
And this is where most theologians and commentators come down. It's actually a person whose name was Syzygus. Syzygus is the true companion. Syzygus is the person who was addressed by Paul. And Paul's simply saying, true Syzygus. And it shouldn't be transliterated. Or sorry, it shouldn't be translated. It should be transliterated. It's an actual proper name, Syzygus. He was a man named Syzygus. And his name meant companion or work fellow. So why does Paul call him true Syzygus? I think it's a play on words. It's a play on his name. His name means yoke fellow. And Paul was calling him a true Syzygus. Somebody who really lived up to his name and really was in every sense a yoke fellow or a companion to Paul. So if it is a person named Syzygus, then that means it's likely an elder or deacon or some other leader in the church whose name was Syzygus. And that Paul's addressing him. It's just a play on his name. True Syzygus. Uh, Paul does it in Philemon. Paul does it in the book of Philemon. Verse 10 and 11 with Onesimus, the slave that Paul was returning back to Onesimus. Onesimus meant, uh, I shouldn't have started that sentence. Onesimus, it meant uh, forgetful. That's what it meant, forgetful. And he says, Onesimus means help, useful. Onesimus means useful. And so Paul, when he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, he says, he was useful to me and now I'm sending him back to you hoping he'll be useful to you. And it was just a play on Onesimus' name. He's useful. He's true Onesimus. He really is useful, just like his name means. I think Paul's doing the same thing here. Syzygus, you are my true companion, just like your name says. And I want you, Syzygus, to help these women get this issue resolved. So it was, I think, an actual individual in the church. I promised you that wasn't going to change your life. None of you have been revolutionized by that fact, so let's move on to the second one, which is the motivation that Paul gives for helping these women. And there are really two of them that we see. The first is because they had shared his struggle in the cause of the gospel. At some point and at some time, these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, had labored with Paul in ministry alongside of him with his other fellow workers in the church for the same cause, the same goal, the same gospel, the same God, the same word. They were yoke fellows with him. What I... I want you to notice, friends, that it is that these two women, Yodi and Syntyche, they were mature believers and had been believers for a long time. Do you realize that it is not always the immature believers or the new believers who cause problems in the church? Do you know that? You know who it is more often than not? It's the mature believers. It's those who know their Bibles well. It's those who have been Christians for years. It's those who should know better that cause problems in the church. It's very seldom the new believers. You know why? Because when a new believer gets saved and they come into the church, they're just overflowing with love and gratitude to the Lord. Overflowing with love for all of you, even those of you who are the most annoying. And you can't do anything wrong to them. And they don't want to stand up in the congregation and really cause any waves or cause any distraction. And to them, it's all new. And they're just sitting there soaking it in and learning. And you ask them, what's your position on that? And they'll consult with somebody who's in leadership. And they don't want to make any issues. they got no pride issues because all of that was humbled at the cross. And they're just so in love with the Lord and in love with the body of Christ and the Word of God. They would never do anything to harm the body because it's so precious to them. But give that new believer five years or ten years or worse yet, twenty years. You know what happens? Those of you who are the most annoying begin to grate on them and wear on them. And that love fades and that warmth sort of disappears and it becomes coldness. And the mature believers get entrenched in the church and their interests are in the church. And my daddy built this church and I was a minister of this and I once was a deacon in that ministry and I've been here and I've done that. I used to run this and I used to teach that. And they get entrenched in the church. 
And at some point in our lives, there is this transition that takes place where we begin to think that everything that goes on in the church ought to serve my ends and my interests and my means and satisfy me and meet my expectations and be exactly what I want. It's the older believers in the faith who are most prone to that. Because we cling to our pride and we can cling to our ambitions and we begin to think that we have a right to something and your seniority sitting in that pew earns you something, speaks to something. Yodi and Syntyche, they weren't brand new, freshly minted believers. These were ladies who had served alongside Paul in the cause of the Gospel and something had happened that went sour. And friends, that shows us, that teaches us a lesson. It's those of us who know our Bibles well, who are mature in the faith, that can fall prone to this type of stuff. Not just the new believers. Not just the new ones. So Paul says to them, they have struggled, to, in, to, they have shared in my struggle with the gospel along with Clement and my other fellow workers. That sort of puts a whole new perspective on it, doesn't it? When you look at the person that you're in conflict with and you realize, you know, this person is struggling along with me for the same goal and the same end. And we ought to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're not at competing interests here. Our interests really, if they're both the same interests, if we both have the right interests, they're the same interests, and that means we're heading in the same direction. And I'm not talking here about being united with everybody who's moral on all the moral and social and political issues of our day. I'm not talking about united with the emergent church and people who don't hold any of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I'm not talking about you being united with mainlines and, and cultists and anybody who just names the name of God and Christ. That's not what we're talking about. Not that kind of unity. What we're talking about is striving together for the faith of the gospel, for the glory of Christ. And if both people are aimed at the same thing for the same purpose, intent on one thing, then all of a sudden you've got to realize we're sharing in the same struggle. So why would I shoot my brother in Christ? Who turns and shoots the fellow soldier in the battle? And once you realize we're all in the same battle, that gives me a motivation to make sure that the conflict on my side of the enemy's lines is resolved and it's dealt with. And I don't have to... I don't have to worry about somebody shooting me in the back or me being bitter toward my fellow laborer. There's a whole new perspective on it. The second motivation that the Apostle Paul gives us is contained at the end of the verse. And he says, these women had shared with me in the struggle for the gospel along with Clement. And then he sort of loops in a bunch of other fellow workers or fellow laborers in the gospel. My other fellow workers. And he doesn't name them all because I think, quite honestly, after he named Yodi and Syntyche and Syzygos and Clement that probably a whole bunch of names popped into his mind. He realized, I can't fill up the rest of this page by just naming the people who are my fellow workers. So he lumps them all into this group, my fellow workers, who had also shared with him in that struggle. And what's important is not that their names are written in Philippians, but that their names are written where? In the book of life. And that's what Paul reminds them of. Their names are written in the book of life. And that, my friends, is a motivation for resolving conflict. Your name is written in the book of life. Now, what is the book of life? It's mentioned over half a dozen times, mentioned six times just in Revelation, alluded to other times, mentioned by name a few other times in the Bible, probably close to 10 or 12 times the book is alluded to or mentioned. What is this book? And it kind of interests me because I read something like that and I say, okay, my name is written in a book in heaven. I want to know what that book is. I want to know what the purpose of that book is. I want to know who wrote my name in that book, how my name got written in that book, why my name was written in that book, and what the significance of my name being written in that book means. So I started going through the Old Testament, the New Testament. I found a few different references to the book of life, and I want to read them to you. 
And I want you to listen here, friends, to the significance of having your name written in the book of life. Even the Old Testament saints, as far back as Moses, knew that their names were written in a book. The righteous were. You go back to Exodus 32, verse 32. And Moses, and this is the incident right after the golden calf, after he came down with the commandments from Mount Sinai, and he saw the nation uh, committing all of their immorality and their covetousness and their greed and their idolatry at the golden calf. Moses says to the Lord, But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please, blot me out from your book that you have written. And Moses' prayer basically was, Lord, I would like you to forgive this whole nation. And if you won't do that, blot my name out as well. And the Lord went on to say to Moses, I'm not going to blot your name out in place of theirs, but those who sin against me, their names will be blotted out of the book of life that I've written. It's mentioned again in Psalm 69:28, an imprecatory psalm. Imprecatory meaning simply a psalm where the, the psalmist asks God to bear, bring down a curse upon his enemies. Psalm 69, verse 28, May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. The book of life is a record of the righteous. Then you get it in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And there we see that the book of life is going to play a part or have a significant role in the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous at the end of the age. And those whose names are written in the book of life, the righteous, the redeemed, they will receive an everlasting body and be raised to everlasting righteousness. And those whose names are not written will be raised to everlasting disgrace. Jesus alluded to the book in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, when he says, Don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Now, friends, this is not a metaphorical book. It's not an allegorical book. It's not a spiritual book. It's not some spiritual truth that we have to try and allegorize or metaphorize or spiritualize in order to mine out its significance. It's a real book with real writing of real people's real names in that book. There's a significance to it. Then it's mentioned six times in the book of Revelation. That's the most prolific collection of verses mentioning the book of life. The book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 5. To the church in Sardis, the Lord says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his holy angels. Some people read that verse and they say, there's the Lord threatening us that he's going to erase our name from the book of life. No, it's a promise that those who are redeemed are saved, Their names will not be blotted out from the book of life. That's God's promise. I won't blot out the names of those that I have saved. That's the promise of the church at Sardis. Revelation 13.8, and this speaks of the Antichrist and all those who will eventually worship the image of the beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And there's that little phrase, foundation of the world. Interesting little detail. I'm going to return to that in just a second. Revelation 17, verse 8, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast whose na- the beast that he was and is not and will come. And then Revelation 20, verse 12, speaking at the end of time, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. That goes back to Daniel chapter 12. All of the dead will stand before Him. All of the books of the deeds of the unrighteous will be opened. The book of life will be opened. And all those whose names have not been recorded in the book of life since the foundation of the world will be judged according to their deeds. And what is the result of that judgment? Revelation 20 verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire which burns forever and ever. And then Revelation 21, verse 27, speaking of the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, and that glorious city in which righteousness dwells. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then, of course, it's mentioned here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. And I want you to remember the context. Paul said at the end of chapter 3, you're citizens of heaven. What does he mean by that? Chapter 4, verse 3, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, when was my name written in the Lamb's book of life? What did the book of Revelation say? Before the foundation of the world. Before God ever spoke a molecule into existence, my name was in that book. Now, chew on that over lunch today. That blow you away? Now, that's only appropriate since He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The names of all of those whom God set apart for salvation and then secured their salvation at the cross and then called them and drew them to His Son in time, all of their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before a single molecule was spoke into existence. Before the foundation of the world, He wrote down the names of all of His elect and My name was among them. Now, at that point, what had I done to earn salvation? Nothing. Nothing. I had done nothing to earn salvation. What did I deserve for my sin? Friends, my name was written there before I was born. My name was written there while I was yet a rebel in sin, hating God and hating Christ and wanting nothing to do with Christ. My name was written there. And then when I came to faith in Christ and I bowed my knee to the sovereign God of the universe, then in time became the significance of what had been done in eternity past. Paul said he has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own grace and purpose. His own grace, 2 Timothy 1, I think it's verse 9, which was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, there will come a day when I will say to all those on my right hand, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. It's the Lamb's book of life. My name was there. If you've repented of your sin and trusted Christ for salvation, your name is there. You say, well, I haven't trusted Christ for salvation yet. Is my name there? I don't know. I've never seen the book. But if you want to find out, the best thing to do, acknowledge your sin, turn from it, and trust Christ. And you'll find that your name is there. Now, how is that a motivation for living harmoniously? That brings us back to the text, right? We understand what the Lamb's Book of Life is. Why does Paul mention it in this context? Well, look, if I'm at war with my brother or sister in Christ and we got some conflict between us, I need to step back for a second and realize... That person's name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. That's a child of God. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. I had to humble myself because the fact that my name is found in that book should not cause in you any pride. 
If there's anybody here who, who takes what I just said and say, hey, my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You ought to serve me. My name was there, but God thought so much of me before the foundation of the world that He wrote my name down in a book and decided to save me. If that's how you take that, you have got it all messed up. It's all backwards for you. It ought to be the most humbling thing in the world for you to realize my name was written there before I did anything good to deserve that. It was all a matter of grace. And therefore, I ought to bow my knee and humble myself in light of that fact and serve those who are also written in that Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. It's a very humbling thing. And it ought to motivate us to humble ourselves and to serve other people. So here's the bottom line. If you have personal conflict and you're dealing with that with somebody within the congregation, friends, it ought to be for us of utmost urgency to get that resolved and to deal with that. Why? Well, because they're fellow laborers with us in the gospel. They struggle alongside of us and their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We've got to humble ourselves and step over the gap and be reconciled to our brother and sister in Christ so we can strive together for the faith of the gospel, united in spirit and the bond of peace for the glory of Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank You for the marvelous and wonderful and mind-blowing truth that You so loved us and You so determined to set Your love upon us that even in eternity past, grace was given to us. You prepared a kingdom for us from before the foundation of the world. You chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And You wrote our names down before the foundation of the world. And God, may that humble us and humble us mightily this morning. And may we walk away from here with not an ounce of pride in our beings, but may we pour contempt on it. That is what it deserves. Thank You for the grace that You give to obey You. Thank You for the grace that You give to be part of the family of God. And we thank You for Your wonderful grace which has saved us and redeemed us and made salvation possible. And now a reality for those who have trusted Christ. We love You and we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.